0: Well, hey, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us for this time of worship and this teaching. And uh, as we transition out of worship and into today's message, I just want to say that no matter who you are and no matter where you are, the message that we're going to talk about today, I think, has particular relevance for you. Uh, really, truly, um, we're, we're looking in the, the book of Acts. We're looking at Acts chapter 15 today. So if you have a Bible, you might want to grab it. We're going to be there in a couple of minutes. But this reveals some some inner realities of the church. Acts chapter 15 Uh, sort of pulls the curtain back on things that happen inside the church oftentimes and answers questions that I think a lot of us have about how we navigate complex circumstances. And and in the process, I think for those of you that are maybe exploring faith, maybe you're wondering about Jesus, you ask questions about who he is, maybe you wonder about the church. I think this might reveal some things about who the church is called to be that may answer some questions for you. And so if you're exploring faith, I think this is going to have something for you. But I also truly believe that if you are a part of B4 Church, if you call this church your church, if this is your home, then there is a particular relevance for you that is very specific. And here's why. Because we are a church that is in a specific place during a specific time. In other words, we are a church that is located someplace very specific that I believe is very strategic for us as a church but it's also very complex for us as a church. And so today's passage speaks of those complexities. It speaks to the kinds of things that we deal with in our culture, in our location today. Not only that, we're in an interesting time. Uh, obviously, there's a global pandemic. There's there's national tension everywhere, but also an interesting time for us as a church. We are in still a bit of a transition, and uh, I haven't been here that long, and so we're looking at the future and wondering what it looks like, and maybe you have questions about what the future looks like for our church. And so for that reason as well, I believe that this passage has some very specific things to say to you. This is going to teach us things about before church and who we get to be as a church. So before we dive into the text and start explaining this and unpacking this, I want to just tell a little bit of a story for a second. Um, there's a there's a, a story that comes way back from my past that I think will set the stage for or give some context to where we're going with this passage today. Uh, I started two churches in my life. And uh, both churches, I've been really surprised by how eclectic the crowds have been. There have been people that have come to the churches. And when I look out, I'm like, man, this is the most diverse, crazy, like, bunch of people. Like, In fact, oftentimes, I look at the church and I say, the only explanation for a group like this getting together, the only way you could explain this is that Jesus did it. Like it takes Jesus to get this diverse of a group together. So, so I've seen some interesting people go, Well, the, the, the first church that I planted, um, there was a group of bikers that started attending this church. And uh, not exactly the crowd that I thought I would, uh, that I thought I would attract in those early days, but they got really excited about this new thing called church. This was like a new idea for them. And so they started inviting some friends. They started introducing me to some friends. And then there was this one particular couple. They said, you know, we want to get married and we want you to do the wedding. And I was, I'm a brand new pastor, you know, I'm 28, 29 years old. I am just brand new learning how to do this thing. And of course, I'm excited about anybody that's willing to come to my church and let me be a part of something like this. So I said, absolutely, I'll come do this with you. And so uh, I go to this house. In fact, I believe I was the only person that drove a car to the house. Everybody else was on a motorcycle. Uh, When I get there, I go to the backyard of this property, and I think I'm the only person not wearing leather every single person is wearing leather in the backyard. And it is just this crazy scene. It is wild. Uh, there were drugs being done in a motor home in the back part of the property. And one of the guys came up to me and said, pastor, you don't want to go over there. You need to steer clear from there. I was like, thank you for the warning. And uh, I am so uncomfortable. And then at one point, I noticed on the back of some of the leather jackets, I noticed that there's a patch on a bunch of the jackets these guys are wearing. And it says gypsy jokers. And if you don't know who the Gypsy Jokers are, you can look this up, but um, they are not the kind of group that I would typically spend time hanging out with. And so I realize I'm hanging out at a wedding where half these guys are a really, really rough, notorious, like serious motorcycle club. And, uh, and so my blood, I mean, I'm just like all of a sudden, like, what, what am I doing? Why, why am I here? And I start to get really, really nervous. But the crazy thing is, these people, they just kept introducing me to their friends, Gypsy Jokers, other bikers, different bike clubs. They're all coming around. And I'm just, they're getting to know me. And I was, they, they really wanted me to meet their other biker friends. Like, Hey, this is our pastor. And they're like, Hey, cool, man. You know, they're, and, so, and so I'm standing there and I'm just thinking, this is so surreal. And then we get to the ceremony. And um, in fact, when the ceremony started, uh, they, they rode in the, the bridal party rode in on motorcycles. And so even the bride, she comes in on her own bike and they come rolling up, you know, and it was this whole, like, orchestrated thing. And I'm standing there in my khakis with my, you know, my Sperry topsiders. you know, like I am the nerdiest of nerdy guys. Like you think I'm nerdy now. I was real nerdy then. And so I'm standing there and like you couldn't pick two different ends of the spectrum. And so I do the wedding and then uh, I'm just like looking around afterward. I'm thinking, man, these, these guys really wanted me here and they wanted me to meet their friends. They wanted me to talk about Jesus to their friends. And so while I'm standing there, I just start thinking like, what would it look like? What would it look like if more and more of these guys standing around here at this wedding started following Jesus? What would it look like if, if people from this crowd began following him? And it was almost like while I'm standing there, I just, it was like Jesus tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, you know that you and I might have different ideas of what church people look like and what the church looks like. And as I stood there, I just started asking myself questions. I started thinking, you know, if, if, these, if these guys you know, they became Jesus followers. Would they, uh, you know, would they, would they trade in their motorcycles and get sensible Toyotas? You know, because is that what Christians do? You know, and I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, you know, would they, would they like trade in the leather and get some khakis like Pastor Brad has, you know, like I start thinking through this, like what would it look like? And I realized, no, none of those things would be true. They'd still be riding their bikes and wearing their leather and being like all of those things. And so my categories just began expanding for what it could look like to be the church. And I think that's a really great illustration for what we see happening in Acts chapter 15. In Acts chapter 15, the categories are being blown open. And this is going to tell us something about what God has for the church, I believe, in the coming days ahead. And so if you'll join me, we're going to start reading in Acts chapter 15, verse 1. Let me give you a little bit of background for this. Paul and Barnabas, they've been traveling through the Roman Empire, and they're telling people about Jesus, and churches are getting started. And uh, maybe another way to say it is they've been attending some biker weddings, if you know what I mean. They've been gathering some people that were a little uncommon, a little unexpected around the gospel. And they return to the city of Antioch, and and they get to Antioch, and they begin to report all of the things that are taking place. They're telling all these beautiful stories. And the church at Antioch, we've talked about This in the series. It was an incredibly diverse church. And so they just love this. Like with open arms, they welcome this news. They're super excited about what's going on. And then we pick up in Acts chapter 15, verse 1, and something shifts a little bit in the atmosphere. And I just want to read it to you and then we'll talk about it. It says this, but then after they've given this report and they're sharing the story, but then some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers: unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be. Saved. So, so I want you to get the idea of this that they're reporting all this good stuff that's taken place, everything that God's been doing. They're celebrating the work that's been done, and some individuals show up from Jerusalem. Now, J- Jerusalem is sort of the, the worldwide headquarters for Christianity at the time, right? This is where the whole thing got started, this is where it all began. These individuals are coming from the epicenter of Christianity. Jerusalem is, is the world center of this. And guys from this church show up guys who are a part of that church. So these are Christians. These are Jesus followers. They show up and they start teaching these people in Antioch. They say, listen, if you really want to be saved, if you really want to enjoy the life that Jesus promised, then there's one more thing that you need to do. You need to be circumcised. Now, I'm not going to go into the details of this because a couple of weeks ago, Pastor Alex did a great job of explaining this and the similar events that were taking place in chapter 11. So I don't want to bore you with the details, but I just want to say this. This is the equivalent. These guys coming to this place and saying, you need to be circumcised. This is the equivalent of me looking at those biker friends of mine and saying, you guys, you need to sell the leather and get some khakis, right? They're going, what are you you talking about? And fundamentally, fundamentally, this kind of teaching This kind of thinking is against everything that Jesus came to reveal and everything that Jesus came to do. See, The obvious objective of Jesus was to open up a new way for humanity to relate to God, to open up a new way for us to encounter God, to experience God, to relate to God. He offered a new way for us to move through our life to experience real life. But what's interesting is that Jesus didn't just offer us something new, the doorway or the entrance, the means by which we get into that new way, was also different than anything the world had ever seen. The entrance to this life is the polar opposite of what humanity historically considers the, the, the starting point for life with God. In fact, um, I, I, remember, I remember standing at the graveside of my great-grandmother. I'd uh, performed her memorial service and And I was standing there and I had just a few family members around. And I remember one of my uncles, I remember he just stood and sort of under his breath. He said, well, if anybody was good enough to get to heaven, it was her. And I've never forgotten that moment. And I've never forgotten those words. Good enough. Good enough. You know, over the years, I've heard a lot of people talk about being good enough. I've heard a lot of people describe, I don't know if I'm good enough. I don't know if I'll be good enough. I hope that I'm good enough to someday get into heaven. I've heard that kind of language. I'm sure you've heard that kind of language. And there are a lot of people, even in Christianity, that that believe that Jesus himself was in the business of making good people. Now, let me just say something that I think you need to hear. Jesus is not interested in making us good. Jesus is interested in making us alive. That's what Jesus is in the business of. And our adherence to rules or our obedience to regulations, our our holding to some sort of standard, that stuff doesn't make us alive. It never has made us alive. It never does and it never will make us alive. That's not what does it. There's words that we use to describe this type of behavior. Um, In in culture, in, in our society, it's called moralism. There, there's a religious side of this, and it's and it's called legalism. Um, moralism or legalism, they're basically the same thing. They're essentially the same idea. And, and this is what moralism is. Moralism is this idea that you'll be acceptable. Um, if it's in religion, you think you're going to be acceptable to God. If it's in society, maybe you're irreligious. Well, then moralism is you think you'll be acceptable for yourself or you'll be accepted in culture by The things that you do by obeying a certain set of standards, that's moralism. So so there's religious and cultural moralism that exists today. By the way, you don't have to be religious to be moralistic. In fact, you don't even have to be conservative to be moralistic. You just have to have a set of standards that you've decided are the standard, and then you're going to obey that standard. So there's this whole idea, and it's just built on what am I going to do? Am I going to be good enough to be accepted? So I have rules and I have standards. And those things have to be upheld. The problem is that moralism always leads to one of two things it either leads to self loathing or it leads to self righteousness. Let me just explain this it leads to self loathing because many people will realize they're never going to be good enough to to live up to the standards. A lot of people, religious people in particular, they understand that God is perfect and and wonderful and they think I'm never going to measure up. And so if you're living moralistically towards God, well, then you're always going to be self-loathing. You're always going to hate yourself. You're always going to be beating yourself up. You're never going to be good enough. If you're doing that in culture, you may have a set of standards and you keep violating those standards. Or if you set the standards yourself, if you're determining what they are, you may convince yourself, well, actually, you know what? I do meet the standards. I actually am a pretty good person. And you start telling yourself this story and pretty soon you become self-righteous because you look at yourself, you look at your deeds, you look at the things that you're doing and you justify yourself and therefore you become self-righteous. That's what moralism leads to. But it will never lead to you being alive. I think it's kind of ironic when you realize that an inferiority complex and a superiority complex are born out of the same thing, the same idea, the same place. The difference is where the standards are set and the history that you come from. So if you have certain advantages, like where you were born or the language that you speak or the color of your skin or your intelligence or your looks, your willpower, you may find yourself very self-righteous, but maybe you lack some of those things. You may find yourself self-loathing. That is moralism and legalism. And there is no transformation. There is no transformation in moralism and legalism. That is not the gospel. And for thousands of years, people have fallen into the trap of thinking that this is how you relate to God. Like there's a God in heaven. And so I'm just going to be really moral. I'm going to do all these good things and somehow earn his favor. And what Jesus proclaims to us is exactly the opposite of this we're not good because of what we've done. Jesus says you're good because of what I've done. You're good because of what I've done, which by the way, I trust his good works a lot more than my good works, right? It's grace. He lavishes us with grace. It's because of what I've done that you are now good. And when you truly embrace, when you truly experience and you receive and you sit in that grace, it changes everything for your life. Your guilt or your shame that you maybe had because you didn't measure up, well, suddenly that's eradicated. The striving and the earning, the the feeling like you never are going to get enough, that's no longer necessary. And then when you start to receive this, that is when you begin to come to life. That's when life springs forth from your soul. The, The problem is this. The problem is that as humans, we are drawn to moralistic thinking like moths to a fire. Uh, that, that is how we operate. In fact, um, we, we can hardly resist going back to trying to justify ourselves with our actions. It reminds me of this, that uh, a few years ago, we moved from one house to another house that wasn't very far away. And in fact, um, it was so close to our other house that half of my drive home from the office, I went the same way that I always went. So um, there were multiple times when I found myself sitting in the driveway of my old house I just automatically drove there. In fact, the people that were living in that house were people that we knew and I would pull in the driveway and they'd, they'd wave at me and I'd suddenly realize like I drove to the wrong house again. Why did I do that? Well, not just because I'm absent-minded, but because I have a habit, right? I had this habit that was built. I got in my car and I drove down this road. And at this point, I went this direction and out of habit, I continued to do that. The same thing is true with our tendency towards religiosity or legalism. We move in this direction because that's what we've always done as human beings. Habit. We do the same thing with Jesus. In fact, there are even people, there are people in the church today that'll say, no, no, I believe in grace. But what they're saying is this, I believe that grace is what you experience at first, but then it's hard work, it's effort, it's discipline that allows you to grow. And even that itself is a form of moralism. It's just another version of the same thing. It is always about grace. It's not just how we begin the story. It's how we move through the story. It defines the journey. It's always about grace and the way that we become alive and the way that we stay alive is by constantly basking in the grace that God has lavished upon us. That's how we grow. In fact, this week, I was thinking about movements. I was thinking about movements of God through history and And I was thinking about, some people call them revivals, um, some people call them spiritual renewals, whatever term you want to put on them. I was thinking about these movements of God. And and as I was thinking about this, this line, this, this phrase just sort of came to mind as I was kind of researching and thinking back about all these different moves of God, I realized revival never happens when we fight for biblical values. Revival happens when we present the biblical Jesus. That's when revival happens. Not when we talk about moralistic behaviors. Not when we talk about people doing certain things or living a certain way. That has never in history caused a revival. What causes a revival is when people are introduced to Jesus and his grace, and they make the decision to follow him. That is what spurs on revival. The gospel is this unique and beautiful, one-of-a-kind thing in our world. It is the only thing offered to humanity that changes us through grace. So, so... <laughs> probably should get back to the text. When these guys show up at Jerusalem and they say, yeah, great. We're we're glad you heard about Jesus and we're glad you want to be a part of what God's been doing for thousands of years through this people of Israel. But there's this other thing that you have to do. It contradicts the message of Jesus. If there is anything you add to receiving grace, then it is contrary to the message of Jesus. You say yes to Jesus. That's all it is. And these guys show up and they say something different and there's going to be a problem. In fact, we see that in first, verse two. It says, and after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate, that's another way of saying they got in a big fight with these individuals, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and to the elders about this question. So these guys come from Jerusalem and they talk about this and they say, you know what? then we'll go back to headquarters and we'll clarify some things because last time we checked, all we needed was grace. And so they decide we're gonna go down and we're gonna have a conversation. And so they go there and the apostles and elders in Jerusalem, they start debating. You can sort of imagine the British parliament in this moment, you know, everybody fighting, screaming at the same time. And then we get to this in verse seven. It says, after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? We couldn't live up to the moralism. That's what he's saying. And so why are you doing this to them? Why are you giving them more hoops to jump through? And then verse 11, he says, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. So I want to pause here. There's a debate, which is going to happen. There are debates, believe it or not, there are debates in churches, amen? People start talking about different things. What's this? How should we do all these different kinds of questions, right? Right. That's going to happen. And when that happens, it's going to require that somebody shed some light on that situation or on that debate to reveal what's true. Now, the question is, what is the light? When we say we need to get clarity on an issue like this one, what is the light? Is it the theories of men? Is it the theology of, of scholars? Is it is it the, the authority of people that are in power? Is that what we do? We go to these people that are in power and they know or or we go to the people that have really studied the Bible, maybe more than us. And what do you think? Or are there theories that people have applied to the Bible? And so we lean into those. Like, what is the way that we find clarity on these inconclusive issues? Well, the light for them and always for us should be Jesus. Whenever you and I read the Bible, whenever you and I uh, maybe see something in the church. We hear something happening with Christians somewhere, and we begin to question, well, is that is that really the way God's moving? Is that really in alignment with God's word? If there's something that seems contradictory, if there's ever a moment we read one thing one place and one thing another, and we go, how do I make sense of this? The answer is to always look through the lens of Jesus. Jesus is the lens through which we view all of these situations. And so, what Peter has done here is look through the lens of Jesus. He says, Listen, what did Jesus talk about? What did he show us? What has he done? Now, let's take what's happening here and let's apply Jesus to this. And he says a couple of things that I think are really poignant. He says, We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. It's grace. And then he says, Any other consideration is putting God to the test. You're putting God to the test. It's that simple. In fact, when he says this, what he's saying is this. If you choose, if you choose to live a moralistic, legalistic expression of Christianity, you are choosing to ignore what God has already revealed to you. You're ignoring, you're testing him. And and what he doesn't say, but what's inferred in this is if that's the case, if that's what you do, then you will also never come to life you'll never experience the joy and the hope and the peace and the purpose that Jesus was offering. You'll still be a moralistic person. So, so I love what happens next. Verse 12, Peter says this. So Peter's one of the apostles in Jerusalem. He hears about this and he stands up and says this. And then it says, all the assembly fell silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul who had come from Antioch as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James replied, James, the brother of Jesus, he was the head of the church in Jerusalem. James gets up and says, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. That phrase is so critical and beautiful. That, that idea of a people for his name is actually a phrase that was really beautiful and special. It was almost like a pet name that was used for Israel. A people for his name was this thing, this moniker that the people of Israel held on And James applies this term to them a people for his name. And then it says, with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. And then he goes to the scriptures, the Old Testament, and he gives evidence for what's happening in front of them. And he reads, he says, after this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, all the Gentiles, all of these individuals, says the Lord, who make these things known from old. This is such a beautiful thing. He's including them. He says, look at, look at the, the I'm going to give them this name. They are our people. And I'm going to use references that, that actually God was giving us to show us that this day was going to take place. From the very beginning, this has been God's plan to extend the tent pegs of the church. That's what he wanted. And then he continues in verse 19. It says, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So I want you to notice James's judgment. He hears all this, and this is his conclusion. We should not trouble the Gentiles who turn to God. We shouldn't trouble them or put another way, let me say it this way. We shouldn't make it hard for people to find and follow Jesus. <laughs> we shouldn't make it hard for people to say yes to Jesus. And I hope you agree with that. I hope as you're listening to this, that resonates with you. We should make it easy for people to find and experience the grace of Jesus and then follow him. That's, In fact, it, it is our job to do that. It is, it is, we are just the opposite of making it hard. We should be making it easy for people. In fact, I love what Pastor Dave Gibbons says about this. He he talks about how we, the church, how we move through the world or need to move through the world. He says this. He says, those who follow Jesus embody fluidity, adaption, and collaboration. It's what we call the third culture way. Adaptable to changing circumstances, to challenging cultures, to complex crisis and problems. If there's one quality that matters most to the fate of the church in the 21st century, it is adaptability. And James is modeling this. He's saying, first of all, this is a violation of grace. But second, we are causing trouble with people that God is finding. So, so what if we didn't ask them to start where we started? So what if we didn't assume that they know what we know? What if we let their journey be their journey? What if we let it start from wherever they are and let them walk towards God from the place that God has found them? What if we do that? That's what he presents to them. Now, I know some of you, you know, you you heard me read the verses and you go, but wait a second. What about that last part? Because there were four things he mentioned. There was this whole strangle things and blood and idols and all this different stuff. Like, what about that? And I'm really glad you asked this question. If you notice the last part in verse 21, he names these four things. And then verse 21, he mentions something right after he talks about Moses being taught in every city and and this is this is this is really interesting because what he's referencing is the reality that the gospel is going to go out into cities where there are synagogues and in these cities where there are synagogues there are people who are going to be following the the mosaic laws the jewish rituals they're going to be following these things there's a culture around these things and there were certain things that would be highly offensive to those people even even in, in their minds, they, they, would, they would render them unclean. They would think, I'm ceremonially unclean because I've had contact with a person who participated in all of these different things. And, and so, so basically what he's telling them in this moment is this. He said, this is not about you experiencing life. This is not a requirement for you to get in. This is not an entrance requirement. This has to do with being a part of community. This is part of being the communal church together. And he says, there's actually a few things that kind of violate that. that that sort of hinder community. And so we want you to refrain from those things. So in this moment, this is fascinating. James takes about 600 plus Jewish rules and rituals and laws, and he boils them down to four basic things. And he says, you know what? (laughs) Don't do those four things. I want you to stay in community. But it has nothing to do with the topic at hand. This is not about you receiving grace, you being saved, you experiencing life. That is not what this is. What James is doing is looking forward into the future and making sure that as more and more people heard about Jesus, it would be easier for them to enter in. So this is so cool. And I'll wrap up with this. They decided that since the church at Antioch had sent two people down to talk to them, they should send two people back to talk to them. You sent a couple people. We want to make sure the church at Antioch hears our perspective, that this gets communicated clearly. And so they send a couple of people back with with Paul and Barnabas, and and they decide to write a letter and, and explain these things to them. So they carry this letter, and it recaps what was said. In verse 30, we read about it. It says, so when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. By the way, I think some of the rejoicing was for the men in the room who realized at this moment, we don't have to be circumcised as adults, right? So there was some rejoicing for that. And then also just rejoicing because there was this unity, right? And then it says, Judas and Silas, who were were themselves prophets, they encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others. It has this beautiful ring to it. Everything just sort of ends in this peaceful unity and, and everybody being encouraged and there's joy. And what I find so interesting is that these, these Christians in Jerusalem, they had traditions. They had rules. They had, there were things they did just, you know, they were the kind of people that would say, well, we've always done it this way. This is the way things have always been. This is how it had always been. They even had what they thought was biblical support for doing things the way that they did things. But then what we witness in this passage is them shifting their their eyes, shifting their gaze from their past. Even though their past was glorious and beautiful, they shift it from their past and now they look on the horizon of the future and they see the fruitfulness that's ahead and they choose to focus on what God is doing in the next days. They, 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 They make this decision and as a result of this, they partner in this beautiful renewal that God is birthing among the nations during this time. I read this passage and all of this just makes me wonder. Just makes me wrestle with questions. And and in fact, I'm going to invite you to to just wrestle with some of these questions yourself right now. But, But one of the first ones is this. Are there barriers that I put up that make it hard for people to find and follow Jesus? Are there things that I believe, things that I hold to? Are there even things that I do with my actions, my behavior? Are there are there things that I engage in that make it hard for people to find and follow Jesus? Do I make it tough? Are there people that look at my life and go, man, you know what? I'm kind of interested in Jesus, but I see you and I don't know if I want that because they just see barriers and boundaries and rules and rituals. And so I'm, I'm wrestling with that question. I don't want to be a person that puts barriers in front of somebody. And then the second question is this. What are the things that I've decided should be that are firmly rooted in what I've experienced in the past? And I have some. Let me just tell you, there are experiences I've had that are beautiful and they're wonderful and they're good. But are there things that I have just said, you know what? That's the way it's supposed to be because I have this experience in the past and it's causing me to miss out on the fruitfulness that God has for me in the future. Am I willing to be flexible like this church and say, you know what, let's listen, let's hear, let's see what the Spirit of God is doing and confirming, and then let's be willing to move in that direction. I want to make sure that I'm the kind of person that isn't holding on to things that are keeping me from experiencing all that God has in the future. And And then ultimately, the largest question of all of this, in fact, this is the question I think the Bible's asking us constantly is, Am I the kind of person who is living a life whose, whose emotions, whose passions reflect a life that, that is lived out of moralistic striving? Or are my emotions, or my passions? Is my life a life that reflects somebody who is covered in grace? I mean, it, it, do I have a lightness to the way I move through my days? Do I have a freedom? Do I have a joy? Do I have a peace? See, those are the marks of a, of a grace-touched person. And so I'm asking myself that question. Like, Do I move through my days as a person who is fully dependent on the grace of God? Or am I leaning back into moralism, my self-righteousness, or my self-loathing? And, and I just, I, I press that question towards you that if you find yourself either self-loathing or self-righteous, or you just find yourself striving, there is a grace that Jesus offers you when you say yes to him. When you realize that you were so broken, someone had to die for you, and yet you were so loved that somebody did. When you realize that kind of sacrificial grace has been lavished upon you, that will change everything in your life, and you experience freedom. And so I'm wrestling with that, and I'm wrestling with that for you. So We're going to take a moment right now and the band's going to lead us in one final song. And I just want us to take this time to let this teaching sink in, to let these words ruminate, to to let them take root in our own hearts. And even for us to just sort of process right now and think, okay, God, where do I stand in this? And, And ultimately this worship is a time for us to look at God and say, thank you for redeeming me and rescuing me and giving me a future. So would you join me? I'll be back in just a minute, but right now let's worship together. You know, I don't believe there's a better song or a better way for us to close this conversation than by talking about the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. And maybe as you've listened today, you realize that you've been living a moralistic life. Maybe you've been trying to earn or deserve the acceptance of culture or the acceptance of God. I don't know which it may be, but maybe today your ears have been perked and you've realized that there's an opportunity in front of you to say yes to Jesus. And so. Right now, I just wanna tell you the most simple thing in the world is the invitation that Jesus offers. It's the one he's been offering forever. Jesus, when he first met his disciples, he just said something really simple to him. He just said, follow me. And all we have to do is say yes to following Jesus. And so right now, I encourage you, if you've never done that, if you've never made that decision, just make the decision say, you know what, Jesus, I receive your grace. I say yes to you and I wanna follow you. If you do that, if you make that decision, send us a note. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to send you some things and talk to you about it. In the meantime, everybody watching right now, I just want to offer this benediction to you. May you be men and women. May you be a people for God who make it easy for people to find and follow Jesus. May you be a people who tear down barriers and show people grace and extend the love of Christ And may you yourself walk covered in the grace and the love and the mercy that Jesus has given us. In his name we pray, amen. Thanks so much for taking time with us today. Really hope you have an amazing week. Be looking out for all sorts of announcements of things going on. We've got lots of creative stuff happening in the weeks to come. We love you guys and we will see you soon.